This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. In 2012, uh, the Dalai Lama made the following statement. If every eight-year-old child in the world is taught meditation, we can eliminate violence within one generation. And it's a strong statement, a compelling statement that over the last five years has been quoted hundreds of thousands of times. And immediately after it came out, there was a flurry of articles and commentaries about it, and um, most of them positive, but actually some of them not. And one in particular is an article by a writer by the name of B. Schofield in Tikkun's magazine, and it caught my attention. And Schofield is an activist and a yoga teacher, and she has a, a master's in divinity, and she leads workshops on white privilege and um, institutional racism. And she was arguing that, um, that the Dalai Lama's statement wasn't only incorrect, but that it was actually dangerous and irresponsible, because she thought it could uh, turn us away from having the real conversations that would um, actually lead us away from violence, she said. And her first argument is that the term violence itself is ambiguous. If you kill someone who's trying to rape you, isn't that violence? Some people would call abortion violent. Eating meat, participating in capitalism, our broken prison system. And so she said, you know, first we have to agree on what it is that we would be eradicating through teaching all these children to meditate. And her second argument was that historically there have been spiritual and religious traditions based on different kinds of meditation that have actively supported and perpetuated violence. And so, you know, the the sexual abuses within the Catholic Church, for example, and the cover-ups come to mind, or the equivalents in our tradition. And she gave the example of Zen teachers in our lineage, in fact, some of them in our lineage, who actively, enthusiastically supported the war, Second World War, and who... Um, even um, highlighted, you know, the the um, that in the the precept of not killing, that in this case, according to them, meant killing the enemy as many as you could. And so she said, you know, this 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 is true. This is true in our world. And so she was arguing, as as others before her and after her have argued that you can use meditation or you can use yoga to become a more efficient killing machine. And around that time, there was a photo of two Navy SEALs um, in full uniform, combat uniform, doing warrior pose that was circulating on the Internet. And somebody said, yes, but they do look so calm and so serene. (laughs) And, you know, I'm pretty sure this is not what the Dalai Lama was, was referring to. 
Um, but you can. The fact is, is you can use meditation in this way. You can use any spiritual teaching in this way. And so then she has a very interesting sentence. She says, an increase in presence in the world does not increase justice. And by presence, she means a, a raising of consciousness, a raising of awareness. So make, being more aware by itself is not going to make you socially just. She very pointedly says that inner transformation doesn't necessarily lead to social transformation. And that thinking that it does is dangerous. And so by only working on yourself, you won't necessarily change the world. Now, you know, the, the reason this interests me is because I, I agree with her statement that inner transformation doesn't necessarily lead to social transformation. But it also interests me because I work with children. I've worked with children my whole life. And I am passionate about teaching them to be still and silent. The importance of that. To be self-aware. To be kind. And yes, to be present. And I wouldn't presume to, to know if the Dalai Lama is right. In one way, we can't know what would happen if we taught every eight-year-old to meditate. But I do think it's an excellent place to start. And I doubt that he himself meant that meditation alone would take care of all of our conflict. He's not naive. Meditation itself will not affect change. Of course not. But we those of us who are meditating, will. And if and how we do so is up to us. And not just individually, but as, as members of our families, in our, in our societies, our countries. <coughs> These very societies that we have been creating, we have been building for millennia. And so, you know, institutional racism, genocide, mass incarceration, our current political and social climate, they didn't spring up from the ether. They didn't just arise spontaneously from the fabric of the universe. We created them. A lot of me's that become, that become we's created them. So how do we uncreate them? Or how do we create something else. And can meditation help to do that? One of my favorite anecdotes, which I really have quoted often enough that it's in in danger of becoming trite, but I'm going to quote it anyway, (laughs) is of uh, A.J. Musty, who was a a Dutch-American minister and peace activist. And there's a story that says that every night during the Vietnam War, he, sat out, uh, he stood outside the White House uh, holding a candle in protest. And a reporter approached him and said, do you really feel that by standing here holding a candle night after night, rain or shine, that you're going to change the policies of our country? And he said, you've got this all wrong. I'm not doing this to change the country. I'm doing it so that the country won't change me. Mm-hmm. 
I do zazen not in order to change the world, but so that the world won't shape me in its image. I do it so I won't be swept up by the current of grasping and gaining and fighting and competing and accumulating so that others won't decide what kind of life I should have. Is meditation the only way to go against the stream? No. No. But it's an extremely powerful way if what we truly want is transformation. And speaking for myself, you know, I I have very much felt this uh, pull, this tug, you know, between my wants and my aspiration. There's been times uh, during the years in my life here when I've imagined other lives for myself as a writer, as an artist, as a doctor, as a school teacher. I've imagined and, and longed for work that puts me in contact with people who are very different from me, and, and especially people for whom life has been um, a lot more difficult than for me, people who have been marginalized overlooked, forgotten. I've also wished many times that I didn't have to think about all this, that I could just live my life and be comfortable. And for for any one of us, for the life that we are choosing to live in this moment, which we choose, in fact, every day, you don't just choose your life once, Every day, we're we're choosing the life that we are creating. Whether we're choosing it consciously or not, we're still choosing. For, For that choice, there's, of course, all of these other choices that we will not fulfill, that we will not make. And there's, of course, the the environment. You know, there's our karma, the circumstances in which we find ourselves, which may, in fact... Um, greatly affect those choices. There are times when things absolutely happen to us that we have not chosen, that we have not asked for. And that too builds us, right? That shapes us and who we are and who we become. <clears throat> so there's been many times where I, I, I haven't wanted to think about you know, the harm that we, that we inflict on each other, that we inflict on our planet, And yet, ultimately, I always return to this life, and I, and I choose once again this life, because I do believe in the power of zazen. I believe in its transformative power. I believe in its protective power. In its power to remind me that there's a whole, more, a whole lot more to life than my wants and my needs or society's wants and needs for me. They're not excluded, my wants or needs, of course, but there's not all there is. It reminds me, Zazen also, paradoxically actually, that the larger I allow allow my life to be, the more fulfilling it is. Because... The, the, the irony is that, that we work very hard sometimes to keep our lives uh, circumscribed and, and 
known and set. And that it's that very effort that creates so much of the uncertainty and the anxiety because we cannot control our lives in fact. And so that the more I allow the, the, the container of, of what is me, what I perceive as me, to, to expand, to, to really let it be what it really is, the more at ease I can actually be in my life. The less I need to protect my own little territory from invaders. The more I see that there is in fact room for everyone. Everyone. Just last session, I was doing an interview. I was, I was seeing people, and I was pretty suddenly, it, it felt overtaken just by this flood of feeling and the thought, you know, I love people. I love them. And my very next thought was, what's happening to me? Because <laughs> I haven't always felt this way. <laughs> At least not consciously. And, you know, then I thought, well, you know, it is easy to love people during session because they're not talking to you, (laughs) except in very circumscribed (laughs) ways. Uh, (laughs) I'm working on the other times. (laughs) But um, it is true. The the feeling was very true. And uh, it just made me think, you know, that the more willing we are to, to open, sometimes despite... Uh, ourselves, that this is what happens. You know, we, we let people in. We let the world in. So what's happening to me? Reality. Reality is happening to me. Because, you see, we're not meant to be separate and at odds with one another. We struggle, I believe, in great part because we're afraid We're afraid of that closeness, terrified at times, and yet we want it so desperately. How could we not feel split, divided? I was telling, I I did a video conference earlier in the week, and I was telling, um, we were talking about liturgy, creating your own liturgy. And I was telling a group of students, um, you know, there's just there's a few things that I miss about being a, a monk. Uh, primarily, my brothers and sisters. Um, of course, I see them every day, but it's different. It's different because I'm no longer a monk. Um, and I miss, um, there's this moment in the morning when we chant the verse of the Kesa, and you uh, put your uh, Kesa, your robe, on your shoulder, and you kind of let it cascade down to, to open. And then you open it and extend your arms out as you're chanting, vast as the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. I wear the Tathagata's teachings saving all sentient beings. And that movement of of bringing the robe around you, it very much always felt to me as I'm quite literally wrapping, bundling all these beings into my 
being. And I miss that. That action. The Dalai Lama also said, you know, my religion is simple. My religion is kindness. And if we could just do that, if we could just let go into that um, closeness, we would be naturally, effortlessly calm. We wouldn't need meditation. We would be naturally mm, understanding of one another. What I need and therefore what you need. We wouldn't perhaps need to practice to be mindful and aware because we would be already. We would understand very, very viscerally in ourselves our sacredness and our interconnectedness with every other created thing. And therefore, we would act in kind. But that's not our world, is it? Or it's not our world yet. And so we need to understand as clearly as we're able what makes us tick, how we are put together. We need to understand directly, not just intellectually, directly who we really are. And yes, we absolutely need to fight to protect every individual's right to pursuing happiness. And not just on paper, conditionally, for a limited few, but in a practical, unambiguous way for everyone. And I think that's what Scofield is saying. You know, we need to act. Because it's not going to happen just because we come to Sashin, because we um, encounter the teachings, because we immerse ourselves in them. We also have to care. And we have to step forward. We have to act. And so the question comes up, how much do I be still and when? How much do I act? How? For what purpose? How do I know when to speak up? How do I know when to be silent? And a couple of weeks ago, I spoke of silence and what I feel it's, it's importance for our lives. But I didn't talk, however, of the many ways in which it can be used as a weapon can be used to repress, to subjugate, and and in a way, in a very real way, to take someone's life, the right to express themselves. And so silence and stillness can be used to inflict harm. So again, the question is, you know, how do I use them? How will I use them to teach children not to just go further into their own worlds, but to use their own strength in their lives as they're interacting with other children and with the world that is demanding so much from them and so early, earlier perhaps than ever before, that is demanding them to grow up before they even have time to be children. What will we teach them to help them deal with this world that is moving so fast? 
So that's what Gyokuro and Ryan and Stephanie, who work with me in Zen Kids, you know, we're constantly asking ourselves, what do we want to leave them with? How do we talk about this, about being kind and being respectful, about really seeing one another, relating to one another? And more importantly, how do we show them? How do we show them that there's another way to live one's life than what they're going to get on the Internet, perhaps even on the playground? How do we show this to them? And I think that's the key, that it can't be abstract, just as it can be abstract for us. You know, doing zazen and realizing emptiness by themselves won't make us care about religious freedom, the environment, or social justice. But realizing emptiness, our interbeing, as Tignahan calls it, makes it that much harder to ignore that what I do to you, I do to myself. In fact, it makes it hard enough that it hurts when you do. Because in, in that moment, you are, you're completely awake with your eyes open in the gap, the gap between what you know is reality and your actions. And so it's, it, it, it's harder to keep it in the realm of theory, of philosophy. It makes it harder to do nothing, you know, as you watch the world, as you live in the world yourself. In the early months of our Beyond Fear of Differences uh, group, as we were getting together to start to to plan it, and this is, uh, for those of you who are um, new, it's a group, it's a social action group that um, we're studying and, and attempting to counter oppression and bias and abuse of power. You know, first of all, really through educating ourselves and, and slowly, you know, working with the residents first. And we're taking up issues of, right now, primarily uh, race and gender. But it's, it's really meant for all forms of, of bias and oppression. And um, as we were just beginning to form, somebody sent the group, the planning group, a, um, an article about, uh, at the time, a rising white nationalist leader, a young man by the name of Derek Black. And he is the son of, um, um, I don't remember his father's name, who's also, uh, his last name is also Black, who um, started Stormfront, which the Southern Poverty Law Center follows as a hate group. And he's uh, David Duke, Dukes of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, he's his um, godson. And at 19, he, was, um, he already had his own radio show. I think at 13, he started, he started um, contributing articles to, the, to his father's website. And by 19, he had a, his own show, and he was really showing um, not just promise. I mean, he, has so, he was so filled with conviction of what he saw was right and what was needed 
to take the country back, as, as it was phrased, that he was, he was the, the rising star. And so shortly after Obama was elected, a group of, of white nationalists uh, was gathered together for this purpose. And you could say in one sense that, that Black was being groomed really to, to be the leader, but as I said, he didn't really need much um, incitement. I mean, he, he was fully committed himself, and he was very, very intelligent and very eloquent, actually. And then he went to college, and things began to change. He went to, strangely enough, he went to a very liberal college in Florida, and nobody knew who he was. So in the beginning, he just kind of went under the radar, and it was fine. And he would just, you know, he would go out, he would leave his dorm and call in to his, to his radio show. And he was still active, you know, planning um, conventions, etc. And then he would just go to class like every other 20-year-old. But then he went abroad. And while he was abroad, somebody must have found out who he was. And they outed him. They sent an email to every single student in the college and saying, do you know who this man is and what are we going to do about it? So when he came back, there were over a thousand responses. It was the longest email thread that the college had ever had. And he'd become a pariah. And he still wasn't faced by this because he'd always seen the other as the enemy. So who cares what they think? He went ahead and planned another white nationalist conference to, to rally the troops. And that was posted on the student forum so that everybody knew that it was happening. And everybody just on campus avoided him. They didn't talk to him. They saw him coming. They would go turn the other way. And obviously he saw this, but he went on about, about his, his days. And then one of the guys who knew him, who was um, an Orthodox a Jew named Matthew Stevens had an idea. And he sent Black a text message, and he said, what are you doing on Friday night? And Stevens was having Shabbat dinners in his uh, campus apartment, and he decided that maybe Black hadn't ever met any Jewish people because he saw them as, as other. He said they were not white, and they weren't even normal. He actually used that word. And he invited, like, I said, well, maybe he hasn't met any of them, so why don't I just invite him? And bless him, Black actually went. Bless him, bless Stevens, who did this. And, and Black actually went. He showed up with a bottle of wine. And at first, there was only a few people. And nobody talked about anything remotely social, racial, political, nothing, as if it wasn't even happening. But very slowly, week after week, people started coming. More people started coming to the dinners. And black kept coming also. And one day they decided that they actually liked each other. And then some of the, the, the students who were there decided, well, why don't we ask him why he feels the way he does? What are his beliefs and where do they come from? And so they asked him. And he very politely responded. And he was, he was not into, you know, the, the hateful rhetoric. Again, he was very uh, bright himself, and he thought that that was just, uh, that, that denigrated the movement. 
And so he was basing all his evidence on what he thought was scientific evidence on the difference between the, the races, uh, etc. And little by little, all his friends, because they had become his friends, started giving him articles disproving every one of his beliefs and say, well, that, that's actually not true. Well, actually, this part is not true. Well, actually, whiteness is a construct. Well, actually, no, this one is not true either. And so, little by little, through contact with these young women, these young men who were so different from him in so many ways, but that he undoubtedly, by that point, considered his friends, he changed his mind. 180 degrees he changed his mind to the point where he was practically disowned by his family. He came out first in a... uh, in the student forum, and then a, a public, he made a public statement that he sent to the Southern Poverty Law Center, disavowing the whole idea of white nationalism. And he lost everything, everything that he believed in. Or did he? And meditation didn't do this. Although, who knows? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if the new black uh, does mindfulness meditation. Loving kindness, even, perhaps. I wouldn't be surprised if Stevens had a, a, a strong, healthy, vibrant spiritual practice. Now, the point is that distance didn't bring about this change. Fear and certainty and anger didn't bring it about. Closeness did. The willingness and the the courage to step into what would undoubtedly be a, a very uncomfortable, very uncomfortable territory in order to make something else possible. And that is what Zazen does, in my view. It makes something else possible. Not magically and not unfailingly, but if what we want is to live a good life, the truly good life, then the possibility to do something other than what we have always done, whether out of fear or habit or what have you, is there. To stop and and reflect, is this who I really am? Is this what I want? Is this what I believe? Is this even true? Is this even true? Because without space and time you know, to reflect and to feel ourselves from the inside, what chance do we have? And so we can certainly, when acting, we can act out of anger create change out of desperation. And sometimes that is all we have. Sometimes the, the anger is the catalyst. If your whole life you have been marginalized, shunted aside, silenced, feeling angry is understandable. And it may be what, is, what, what causes that stepping forward. The thing is no one can stay there in that anger for long because it will eat you up alive. But we can also act out of deep care 
and love, out of respect and reverence for all life. And that is a lasting power. Because it doesn't take anything from you, out of you. On the contrary, it, it, it strengthens, it fills you, you could say, to do the work that is needed for the long run. Because as we know, as we live, as we see, you can't just do it once. It's not enough. Even saints cannot live with saints on this earth without some anguish, without some pain at the differences that come between them, Thomas Merton said. Because we each have different ideas of what happiness is and how to attain it, we will almost inevitably run into conflict. But that almost is crucial. That almost is the Buddha's realization. There is suffering, but we can put an end to it. We don't actually, inevitably, have to fight one another if we understand. We don't inevitably have to attack when feeling attacked. Respond with fear, with jealousy, with contempt. we can find another way, as millions of men and women have who've turned inward to find another way. Call forth as much as you can of love, of respect, and faith. Remove the obstruct and defilements and clear away all your taints. Listen to the perfect wisdom of the gentle Buddhas, taught for the wheel of the world, for heroic spirits intended. This is the preliminary admonition to the perfection of wisdom. In 8,000 lines, we're, we're reading this text. We're studying it together, the Sangho. And I love, I love this opening, which very much sounds like, a, like an invocation to me. And every line is punctuated with, a, with an exclamation point. Do this, and do this, and do this, if you want to be free. It won't be easy. In fact, what will be required of you will be heroic. But do it nonetheless and see. See what comes of it. Out of calling forth as much as you can of love, of respect, and faith. And I think of this when I have a disagreement with someone, or when I witness a disagreement. You know, and and here we really are in the best of worlds in so many ways. The most conducive environment in which to cultivate harmony, living with one another, working, practicing together, to wake up and still, and still, We get angry and we hurt one another in small and large ways. And sometimes the truly heroic act is a very simple act. The act of refraining from opening your mouth when you want to say something sharp or harmful. 
it is to, to see that thought in your mind, that thought of ill will, and to replace it with one of compassion, sympathetic joy. Sometimes the, the truly heroic act is to say, I see you. I hear what you're saying. I don't understand it, but I would like to. I don't understand your view. I don't understand how you see the world. I don't understand how you're seeing me right now. Can you explain this to me? Can you show me? So that I can understand. And no, just being kind to each other here won't solve all the world's problems. But it's a very good place to start. So, here's what I think. That silence and stillness and meditation and prayer are like a man, a woman, a child holding that candle and holding it steadfastly in the midst of the hurricanes that are a human life. And that this man and this woman and this child can and must travel with that light and spread it. For that is our action. And that is our responsibility. Because we don't own that light. It's just been loaned to us to care for while while it's in our hands. And we can choose to pass it on, or we can choose to let it die. But why would we choose that? Why would we choose that? I think that Zazen has more power than our intelligence, our physical strength, our will, combined. And even more than our strongest desire, which is the desire to be. The desire to protect ourselves. And I can't prove it, but I know it like I know my name. I think that we do what we want and what we think is right and that the measure of both is based on what we see, what we understand. And so what we see becomes what we know and it becomes what we do. My actions are my only true belongings, the Buddha said. My actions are the ground upon which I stand. So what ground will we choose to stand on? What will we leave in our paths? For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessaswesaygoddard.org.